Sorry. Turn with me to um, Ecclesiastes 7. A good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death and the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind. And the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness the face of the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This is also vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient is in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For is it not from wisdom that you ask this? Wisdom is good with an inheritance and an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God, who can make straight what he has made crooked. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Is it good that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand? For the one who fear God, fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been far off and deep, very deep, who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. If you are a guest with us, um, we're using the ESV Bible. If you happen to need a copy, there should be some under the seats 
in front of you. You can borrow that and use it during the service or take it home with if you want it. It's our gift to you. You will not be stopped at the door, I promise. Um, I have good news for um, some, hopefully most, in the room today. Maybe not for others. Maybe it's bad news for others. Uh, I can't be certain. Um, but he- here's the good news that should be good for most, maybe uh, bad for others, depending on where you are. Um, every one of you, without exception, is going to die. Every single one of you. Okay? Happy Sunday. Welcome to Philadelphia Baptist Church. We're glad you're here today. You're going to die. How's that for an intro, right? Um, now, I don't have the authority, and I don't have it on authority that it will happen today. Um, I'm just saying you will eventually uh, die. Have that on good authority. Um, if you are a guest with us, I hope you have felt welcomed already. Uh, you have walked into the middle of a journey through the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, today, among the many things that God uh, wants us to know, um, he wants us to know that we're all going to die. He's made that evident throughout Ecclesiastes, and it's just as evident in our text today. Uh, in light of this, in light of death, uh, he wants us to embrace wisdom, and a wisdom that comes through death, or, or, or that we can learn through death, or gain uh, through death, they say a wisdom that death uh, brings. Uh, as we've said, or I've said in some form uh, or fashion throughout this journey in Ecclesiastes, I think this book is for the realist. Uh, at times, and at a lot of times, it sounds like it's for the pessimist. Uh, there's other parts, the sort of carpe diem type texts that sound like they're for the optimist, uh, when in fact I would say it's for the realist. Uh, a, a book here that doesn't dodge the hard questions of life. It looks at life as it is which is often difficult, often perplexing, sometimes rewarding, uh, enigmatic, all these words that we've used throughout this. It looks at that and it says, here's how you should live. It doesn't try to paint a rosy picture of life. It doesn't try to explain life away as it is. It just says, that's how life is. Now, here's how you uh, live. So Ecclesiastes, even if it appears to have a strange approach, it is a book written about the good life. Uh, it's written in a strange way, uh, but it's about the good life and how the good life is obtained or lived even in the midst of a difficult, perplexing world. Uh, so even if some of the language of the book may confuse us, the message of the book is ultimately really good for us. Okay. All right. We've made our way to chapter seven today. Uh, honestly, I just just confess to you the last couple of weeks, maybe there was a little bit of pride that creeped in as we've gone through Ecclesiastes that I felt like I was finally getting my head around Ecclesiastes. And I'm like, I, I think I've got this. I think it's going to be smooth sailing for the rest of the way. Uh, maybe I've covered the difficult text. And then I opened up chapter seven and was put back in my place, even though I studied it for half the summer, I still forgot. Uh, chapter 7 is a bit of a heavier lift, probably too much for one sermon, but here we are. Um, so strap in and we'll do our best uh, to get through it because uh, we made a schedule and we're going to stick to the schedule because you all give me a really hard time about not sticking to the schedule. Uh, it's really just my opening qualification to justify how I can't cover every detail of this text. Um, hopefully, We'll get the gist of it, but there's going to be a lot left on the table. Um, so for the time we have, we're going to revisit the topic of wisdom, something we've already gotten a good bit on in this journey. Wisdom's actually been picked on just a bit, uh, sort of like money and power, among other things. Uh, in general, we've seen a lot of good things that make lousy gods. 
Okay, wisdom would be one of those. Uh, but wisdom is still a good thing, a worthy thing, a biblical thing, something worth pursuing. Uh, but like most good things, a right understanding of it is necessary. Uh, if wisdom sort of sits in the realm of knowledge and knowing, certainly that would be a part of wisdom, then we need to know how to be wise. And that's what we're going to aim at uh, today. Um, not sure your initial reaction when you read that text. I heard Ashley's uh, reaction in, in the lobby. She said, it's hard enough to read it. I'd hate to have to preach it. Uh, but not sure your initial reaction to it uh, when she read it or if you've studied it. It contains a lot of proverbial language, a lot of poetic language. Uh, a lot of you probably may have picked up on in the beginning of it this this better than statement. It's comparing things, saying one thing is better than the other. Um, it seems at times the preacher, the the author of the book here, who calls himself the preacher, he's just sort of jumping all over the place uh, in chapter seven. Uh, and then there's not a lot of upbeat language in the text. Uh, sounds a little dreary, maybe even a little depressing, uh, depending on the filters through which you hear it. Um, but. If Ecclesiastes is aimed at helping us live the good life in a hard world, then one of the things this chapter does is help us to see that there is a level of seriousness to that good life that it's been guiding us to. There's gravity to it. I think that would be the addition of this chapter. Okay, the good life is not a life devoid of fun and laughter and joy of food and drink and friend, but it is a serious life. Okay. It's not devoid of those things that would contradict the rest of the book. But this chapter helps us to know that it's the good life is a mix of weight, a mix of seriousness with joy in those other things. Uh, you might say that the person that finds the good life, that lives the joyful life is a person that has some gravitas to them. They're not a fool. OK, okay there's a lot of people that live the good life, so to speak, but they're a fool. Uh, this person has gravitas. So uh, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, here's a good principle for you that would apply here. Uh, we need to we need we need to understand the whole to understand the parts. OK, we need some comprehension of the whole in order to understand the parts. I know for members here, it seems like we cover a lot in a given Sunday, but we're only hitting a piece of the pie, so to speak. All right. So what we're looking at today has a particular aim to it. So if you're new to this, it does not say everything. This is not everything. This is a particular aim, a slice of the whole. Okay, All right, we may be getting a true picture of Christianity, of the Christian life today, but we're not getting a full holistic picture. Hopefully that makes sense. All right. Enough with intro qualifications. Let's get to the substance. Um, I'll put this out there, though. If I do create any questions for you, would love to for you to find me after the service. I'll be around. My name's Corey Varden, one of the pastors here. Would love to chase any of this down. If I can't, there are a couple more elders that are much smarter than I am that I'm sure uh, can help. So three sections today that we'll use to attempt to unpack the text. Uh, everything is going to revolve around wisdom. So first, we're going to walk into wisdom's classroom. Didn't know there'd be a bunch of teachers here, so this was... Uh, devised after that. We already have a bunch of teachers here, so hopefully I would grab you with that. Wisdom's classroom. Where do we go to gain wisdom, basically? And then second, wisdom's limitations. So wisdom is not the end-all, be-all. We need to acknowledge that. And then third, we'll look at wisdom's products or benefits. Okay, What, what benefits flow from wisdom? So three main sections. Got some sub-points under each of those. They'll be on the screens as we go. If not, I'll get them to you as we go. So um, here we go. First, wisdom's classroom. Wisdom's classroom. 
So this chapter points us to the roots or the foundation of wisdom, of where we go to find it, of where it might be available. It points us to the arena of wisdom, so to speak. Um, how about how about the kids and youth in the room at this moment? Ma'am, grab your attention before uh, you check out. Uh, depending on your age, particularly you that are a little bit older, uh, you are probably being asked a good bit or you may be thinking a good bit about what you're going to do with your life. Where you're going to study potentially, what kind of job you're going to get, what are you going to do with your life. Okay, those are those are heavy topics. The closer you get out of high school and then whether you go to college or not, you're thinking about what's next and you're being bombarded about what's next. Well, let me add something to those what next question. How often Have you entertained the question or thought about becoming wise or pursuing wisdom? So as you consider what you might study or pursue something in terms of a career, why don't you put equal attention on the consideration of becoming wise? As much as you might consider stepping into a classroom to study to become a teacher or lawyer or engineer or whatever, why don't you first... Or alongside that or inside that step into the classroom of wisdom and gain that. Okay. So kids, let's step into the classroom of wisdom for adults. Maybe you do it like a continuing education class. I don't know if you have to take those from time to time or maybe this is a classroom. Uh, maybe it's the class you skipped or slept through or just need a refresher. Maybe you failed it at one point. I don't know. Uh, whatever it takes to get you to sort of sit down right now, pull your notes out. Write it down, pay attention, get ready for the quiz or the test or whatever, just to tune in. All right. So four points under this section. And you can think of them as either different classes or different subjects uh, when it comes to wisdom. Okay, whatever works for you. First, wisdom comes through doctrine. Wisdom comes through doctrine. So doctrine is a belief or a set of beliefs. Uh, biblically speaking, it's instruction. It's a set of teaching from an authoritative source. And doctrine is admittedly broad. It contains a ton. Uh, and yes, to be wise, you need to know doctrine broadly as a whole. To be more precise or say that uh, in, a, in a simpler form, uh, to be wise, you need to know the Bible. Okay, We're talking mostly about Bible doctrine. You need to know the Bible as a whole. Uh, But our text would point to something a little more specific when I'm talking about doctrine. Our text would imply that the wise must grasp the doctrine of God. Okay, specifically who God is, what he's like, what he's done and so on. Uh, If you are familiar with the Bible, this is not a novel statement for you. What does the Bible say is the beginning of wisdom? The what? Fear of God. It's okay to to speak up here. Usually this front section is about all I get. So uh, so the, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. Rightly knowing, rightly revering, honoring God is the beginning of wisdom. So basically, the wisdom that we want, the wisdom that we're trying to pursue, it, it begins with God. It starts with God. Wisdom has a starting point, and it's God. Okay. You could probably say the doctrine of God is in the entirety of the background of the text. But I think verse 13 is the most specific with the most pointed truth here. So verse 13 again, consider the work of God who can make straight what God has made crooked. Can you think about that text too hard? Make your head hurt. 
There is a sign right there in the text pointing to what you might call the meticulous sovereignty of God. The layman's translation would be the world is crooked and God is sovereign even over that reality. Verse 14 goes on to say that God made both the day of prosperity as well as the day of adversity. And this is by no means an isolated verse in Ecclesiastes that maybe was mistranslated or the author got wrong. Isaiah 45, 7, I form lights and create darkness. This is God speaking through his prophet. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And we could just go on and on and on finding backup for that. Zach Eswine, who wrote a great book on Ecclesiastes, quoted him before. He said, according to the preacher, there is nowhere we can go where God isn't already there. There is nowhere we can leave where God does not stay. Every bit of our skin, bone, thought, imagination and feeling, every minute pleasure of our prosperity and every glass shard of our adversity is held, governed and seen through us, seen through to us by God. Life under the sun is a God inhabited life. And I love the way he ends this. The bent world rests and rebels within the arms of God. God's sovereignty is a difficult doctrine for some, but it is the place and beginning of wisdom for all. God is never portrayed in Scripture as the author of evil, but is clearly seen as sovereign over all. He is sovereign, according to this text, over what is crooked. What is bent? The lie that too many of us live with and are told and is reinforced every day is that we are in charge. Which is akin to us saying that we are little G gods. We're all little gods that we ultimately can plan and direct and control our lives. And that is a lie. And I think it's good news that it's a lie. Frankly, I don't know about you, I would rather have the one who created me, who designed me, who is said to have all wisdom and who is said to be good. I'd rather have him in charge than myself. There's enough evidence after 40 years that I would mess things up. You may have a better track record, but I do not. Here's part of the point here. Wisdom is not a key that can be used independent of God. To unlock the secrets of life. So wisdom is not a key that can be used independent of God to unlock the secrets of life. Absolutely. Certain ways of living. Okay, certain ways of living will yield better results, results more often than other ways of living. That's sort of in God's economy. Just, just normally how things work. But we can't slide into thinking that the universe is a predictable machine Subject to our manipulation. Wisdom is not magic and God is not a genie for us to direct. According to this text and affirmed by the rest of scripture, if God makes something crooked, it is beyond human power to make it straight. Becoming wise starts by embracing that truth. Obviously a deep truth that we only have a few minutes for today, but it's it's when we hit often as we journey through the word. So God helps us to see it often. Next subject or class. Next, we learn wisdom through looking at death by looking at death. Again, one of the primary themes of Ecclesiastes is that the good life comes through taking a hard look at death. The good life is informed by death. Your eventual end changes 
your current living. Okay, Your eventual death changes your current living. And the connection here is that wisdom is needed for the good life. Death informs the good life. So death informs wisdom. So they're all connected. Death, the good life, and wisdom are all connected. For the most part, this would be the first four verses of the text. Okay, You have reference in four verses to the day of death. The house of mourning, the end of all mankind, as well as sadness of face, which would connect to those. I think the end of verse two is 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 probably the the, the exhortation to look at death to gain wisdom. It says for this talking about death is the end of all mankind translation. Like I said at the beginning, we're all going to die. This is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Death is certain. The living will lay it to heart. One day you will be dead, but right now you're alive. So what should you do? Examine death. Take it to heart. Now, it seems like a no brainer to most of us that if we were asked, would you rather go to a funeral or to a party that you would pick a party? I hope. But the picture being painted here is that a funeral is more instructive than a party. Maybe not as much fun, but more to be learned. As one author said, the obituary teaches us so much more than the birth announcement. Really, the birth announcement teaches us like name, parents, maybe weight, inches, you know, those things that I don't know. I don't know why we need to know those, but that's what it teaches us. The obituary looks back on an entire life and tries to sum it up and tells us so much more. Or you could say endings tell us more than beginnings. It's been said that death is an evangelist. Most people, at least many people that I've found, are are sort of laid bare by death. And proximity matters in that. You know, how close you are to death, depending on your proximity. It, It can expose you, sort of lay you open emotionally, what's going on in your life. We don't typically walk through life thinking about our death, but... But death around us, death in proximity to us, causes us to look at it, to stare it in the face. And according to Ecclesiastes, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Because there's wisdom to be found through death. To paraphrase an author on this, his point, he says, the the coffin preaches a better sermon than the crib. The coffin preaches a better sermon than the crib. Not because death is better than life. But because life comes into focus through death, because in the face of death, the things that don't really matter tend not to matter as much as they did before death was in your face. Death is a friend in advance. Death is a helping hand in life. The end of life can help us to live the now of life. It can change our entire approach to life. The preacher, the preacher here, our author, wants us to stare at death, to literally sit down with death. And he wants us to ask a question. Given the fact that you will one day die and it could be soon, then how do you need to live now? He wants us to sit down with death and ask that question. Given the fact that you will one day die and maybe soon, how are you to live now? Now, death in and of itself does not tell us specifically how to live. I would call it more of a catalyst. Death is a catalyst that will drive you to look at how to live, to figure out how to live. A catalyst to pursue wisdom in living. But let's 
press pause on death here just for a moment, because death says something different to different people. Not everybody hears death, approaches death, thinks about death in the same way for Christians. Death should not spark fear. At least not in terms of what comes after death. As Paul said, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. How could he say that? Okay, Sunday school answer, Jesus. He had met and embraced and followed Jesus Christ. So he could say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. His perspective came through salvation in Christ. Every believer here has the same access to that perspective. But what about those who don't know, haven't met, haven't trusted in Jesus Christ. Well, death can still change your perspective on life. Met enough unbelievers that death changed their perspective, but not in an eternal way. In the end, death could help you apart from Christ to live better now, but not better that results in better after. You could put it that way. Death is not bad news for the believer, but death is the worst news for the unbeliever, because at that moment... It's over in terms of opportunity. At that moment, for the unbeliever, it's over in terms of opportunity. The opportunity exists now, prior to death, to receive the good news that Paul had received, that he could say that, that Carolina received, that we saw witness today. And by good news, I mean that every human being has rebelled against God. And as a result of that, death entered into the picture and not just physical death, but eternal spiritual death. But God did what we did not deserve. He sent his son on a rescue mission to save the dying. He sent his son to to meet a standard that we couldn't. To also meet death, but then to conquer it. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is what makes death an evangelist. It's the empty tomb that says death does not have to be bad news. That the funeral does not have to be bad news. In Jesus, for those that know him and trust him, death is an end, but not the end. That's a big difference. There's no reason to sugarcoat this. Like the Bible does not sugarcoat this. There are two directions here. One that leads to everlasting life. One that leads to life everlasting and another that leads to punishment never ending. Those are the two options. Life everlasting, punishment never ending. Jesus is the only one that makes a difference in those directions. And the question is, have you met him? Have you trusted him? Are you following him? To sum it up, are you ready to die? If that right there is confusing in any way, that, that, I mean, you, you can just sort of put a pin right there and let's address that after this gathering. For now, we need to move to the next point, next subject. Doctrine, death, let's look at direction, direction, okay? Not a lot on this one, but I want to point it out. And by direction, I mean guidance, counsel, words from others, wisdom through others, even through rebuke. Verses five and six. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. So that verse is not saying laughter is a bad thing. Jessica, you're okay. So laughter is a very good thing. A very good thing. But wise counsel, even hard counsel, is better medicine than the comedy show. 
It's better medicine than the best, most appropriate jokes that you have ever heard. I've heard it said that having godly friends versus ungodly friends is like eating uh, healthy food versus bad food. So ungodly friends would be more like just eating dessert all the time, fun to eat, but there's really no nutritional value in it, no nutritional substance, while godly friends are like eating kale. Not sure why everybody picks kale. Uh, It's not as much fun as eating cake, but it's good for you. It has nutritional substance. I think a good loving rebuke from a godly friend is a bit like a deep tissue massage when you are completely knotted up. You know it's going to hurt. And it does hurt, but it is producing some good. There is much wisdom to be gained in the classroom of rebuke. But this is a class that should only be taught. So this will be a qualification on the other side. There's a lot to be gained in the classroom of rebuke, but it is a class that should only be taught by the godly. If you don't have someone in your life godly enough to rebuke you, then you are missing out. We all need tough love from time to time, but we have to have tough people that are willing to do it. Maybe a little specific application to the kids again, youth again in the room. If you're not careful, you will become who you hang out with or they will become you if you're on the other side of that. In order to live the good life that Ecclesiastes is aiming at here, godly friends, good friends are a necessity. Maybe you need to examine your friends. Or maybe you need to examine what sort of friend you are. Is there wisdom to be gained through your friends? And are they gaining wisdom through you? And that has just become all the more applicable as you get older in life. Last point under this section, doctrine, death, direction, finally, depravity. Depravity. Final subject, final class, depravity. Uh, this encompasses the uh, maybe the hardest or at least part of the hardest part of the text verses 20 through 29 for the most part. There's a, a section there that doesn't fit as well. Probably need more time on these verses. That's not going to happen today. So let's see if we can get the gist of it. Verse 20 is sort of a summation okay, of much of what follows. And I think much of what follows after that is really a, a proof or an illustration of verse 20. So verse 20, surely there is not a righteous man on earth. Who does good and never sins. John in the New Testament would tell us that if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. Paul would say we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've traded in the glory of God for other things. Basically, we're all sinful. Okay, we're all sinful. Depravity is another way of talking about the pervasiveness of sin, how it has affected everything. And again, by sin, rebellion against God, basically telling God no. When we told God no, we broke the system, we broke our hearts, so to speak. We are no longer as we should be, and we are not now as Christ is making us to be. So the preacher says there is no one who is perfect. We're all broken, all flawed, all depraved. And then he gives us a lot, but I think what comes after that could be could be explained like their illustrations of that verse. So in verses 21 through 22, he brings an example in to prove the point, kind of puts us in our place. He's like, OK, you want to argue with me that we're not all sinful, that we're not all depraved? Do You talk bad about other people. OK, don't take it to heart when people talk bad about you. You know why? Because you do it as well. You do it as well. You've done the same thing 
and you can't deny it. Pascal said, if people knew what others said about them, there would not be four friends left in the world. Now, you may not always notice when you're talking bad about others or gossiping, if you could put it in that category, but there are no innocent parties here. There may be parties in denial, but there are no innocent parties in the room. And let's be clear, this is not saying it's okay to talk about others because everybody else does it. Okay, kids, I know you love to do that and adults love to do it as well. We're not saying it's okay because everybody does it. He's specifically saying examine yourself before you get mad at others for doing it. And then he's providing, he's basically just providing, in my argument, an example of how universal our depravity is. Okay, you want to argue? How often have you talked about people? Then he decides to upset every female that has ever read the Bible in verses 25 through 29. From his observation of things, according to verse 28, he found one righteous or virtuous man and no righteous women. All right. Appreciate that. So we sort of leaned in the first sermon into the fact that it's Solomon writing this or it's based on a Solomonic figure. Okay, let's just say his perspective on women was a little shady, understandably so. So I think we have to understand we are reading his observations in a way, which points to more issues in his own heart than necessarily all those folks around him. But the reality is, based on the rest of the Bible, this text could be flipped. And written by a woman and the beginning and the ending would be the same, at least of this section. A woman could say the same thing. There is no one who is righteous and never sins. And God made us upright as the text end, but we have sought out many schemes. Solomon's life and explorations and observations and exploits simply prove the point. They just prove the point. We were made upright, but we've sought out many schemes. There is no one righteous. There is no one who does not sin. A lot more in those verses, but I think they serve most of all as a reinforcement to prove that we are all depraved. And here's the point of this in terms of what we're looking at right now, which is wisdom. Okay, in this classroom, how does depravity teach us wisdom? Simply wisdom understands what everyone's biggest problem is. Okay? So here's the point. I want you to write this down. Everybody needs to write this one down. Don't type it on your phone, or you can't type it on your phone. Maybe write it down. I can speak with authority, without hesitation, when I say this this morning. I, I know some of you really well. I know some of you just a little bit, and some of you I don't know at all, maybe. Okay? But I do know what your biggest problem is. Okay? Hopefully this is worth the price of admission. You ready? Here is your biggest problem in your life. You. You are your biggest problem. I. I'm my biggest problem. Wisdom understands that your biggest problem is you. And behind that, wisdom recognizes that sin is everyone's biggest issue. But more specifically, to understand that it's you. It's your heart causing you the most problems. It's your own depravity that causes you the most problems in life. And secondarily, it is your depravity that causes others their, their problems in life. So it just, we just feed off one another. You start to combine this with what we looked at and you quickly see that wisdom involves in part looking in two directions. Wisdom involves looking in two directions. At least you can look in other directions, but you look at God and you look at yourself. 
You look at God and you look at yourself and you don't look at yourself and say how great you are. (laughs) You look at yourself and see how broken you are. All right. No, we got to move on. That's just the first section. (laughs) How's it? How encouraged is everybody so far? Uh, So far, I've told you that you're going to die and that you're your biggest issue. Godspeed. Have a great Sunday. Right. All right. Um, I'm really working on being more encouraging. Just having that conversation this week. I really stink at that. So not helping my average this week. So uh, but remember what I said. Uh, I said this, I think, last week or week before. So for the guests, I say it again. If you know Jesus, even the hard texts are good. OK, so there's some hard texts uh, here. But if you know Jesus, they're all good. Right. All right. Next section. That's wisdom's classroom. Let's look now at wisdom's limitations, wisdom's limitations. Uh, lest we think wisdom be the end all be all, we need to understand it is limited, it is flawed. Previous chapters, as mentioned earlier, has made the point that wisdom may be a good gift, but it makes a lousy God. Wisdom can only go so far, only take us so far. Only fools believe they know it all. Unfortunately, we all tend to be fools at times, and there's a lot of fools in this world. So here are three fairly quick limitations that I think this text makes uh, clear. First, wisdom can lead to corruption. Wisdom can lead to corruption. To quote David Gibson, wisdom does, I'm sorry, wisdom doesn't come in stainless steel. It can rust. It can be corrupted. So this would be verse seven. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Verse 19 would make clear that wisdom comes with wisdom comes a certain level of strength and power. And that's not a bad thing, but it can be. So with wisdom, comes power which can breed corruption. So with wisdom comes power which can breed corruption. That's what verse 7 is alluding to. It's really pointing to the fact that even the wise can turn corrupt when the dollar signs start flashing in their face. Even the wise can turn corrupt when the dollar signs start flashing in their face. Everyone has a price, as they say. Too many have strayed from wisdom due to power and due to money. It's hard not to picture the modern politician when you read this, at least the ones that get the most airtime. So first limitation, corruption. There's a danger in wisdom and the wise are still in danger. Next, comprehension. This is in a few places. Limitation is comprehension. Verse 14, God has made the day of prosperity and adversity so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. There are things that you simply will not know, cannot know, no matter how much you try. This is reinforced in verses 23 through 24. He tested everything by wisdom. He said he wanted to be wise, but he says it's far from me. It's far from him. He concludes, I think in verse 24, who can find it out? Here's how one author put it. He said there's a big curtain between us and the future. We just don't know what tomorrow brings. All the more reason to enjoy the present. This also teaches us that we are finite, that we are creatures, that we are dependent. This also reminds us that earth isn't heaven. It reminds us we need something more secure than that which we cannot know. He obviously adds more to the point than I'm trying to say, but I thought he was spot on. There's a certain level of ignorance that attends everything that we do. No matter how wise we think we are or how wise we become, we are still ignorant to a certain extent. You may say that wisdom operates in fixed parameters. Wisdom operates in fixed parameters. I think that's a freeing point. Sounds like a frustrating one. 
particularly if you like studying your academic, that sounds frustrating, but that is a freeing point. You might be frustrated by the fact that you cannot know everything. But once you know that's the case, then and, and, you know, you'll never run out. The journey will never end, so to speak. And the journey is rewarding. So just just go after it. So wisdom is limited by comprehension. At some point, we always come back to the fact that God is God. We're not. He's infinite. We're finite. He's all wise. We are not. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. He's bigger than us. It's all ultimately bigger than us. We can comprehend a lot, but never all. Final limitation for now. Control. Control. Back to verse 13. Consider the work of God who can make straight what he has made crooked. So point here, there is no guarantee of prosperity and wisdom. No assurance of success, no control over those things. Wisdom is better than folly, that's clear, but it's not a guaranteed path to greatness and ease. It's just not. You cannot promise that. I don't care how much wisdom you gain. According to the text, everyone's lot in life has some crook or some bend to it, a bend that is unfixable by us. Life shows that sometimes the righteous, according to this, and wise Perish early while the wicked and foolish live long. In the end, we're not in control as much as we like to think we are. I mentioned the live control earlier and the fact that it's ultimately not a good thing. Not a good thing to think we're in control. Not a good thing to be in control. Wisdom is good. Wisdom is preferred. Wisdom is great, but wisdom has limits. It can lead to corruption. It doesn't result in full comprehension. And it doesn't yield the control that we often want. If we don't embrace its limits, we'll be unable to enjoy its rewards. We have to embrace the limits of wisdom to be able to enjoy the rewards of wisdom. Which leads to the final section, wisdom's classroom, wisdom's limitations. Let's end by looking at wisdom's products. And we've been alluding to these along the way, but here are the benefits of wisdom. Some, if not all of these, are just logical. Just follow the logic of the text. Okay, this is what comes with the right view and right application of wisdom. Okay, let doctrine, let death, let direction, let depravity teach you wisdom. Acknowledge the limits of it, and then here are the potential outcomes or benefits. First product or benefit, perspective. Perspective. So, so much of the text is pointing to this. Okay, it's a perspective changer. You just think about death. Looking at death gives us perspective. Studying doctrine gives us perspective. Listening to godly counsel gives us perspective. Knowing our flaws gives us perspective. So really the entire text is about perspective in some way. But there, there's one particular verse, I think, that aims specifically. Sort of like the bullseye verse of perspective. Verse 10. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Which implies with wisdom you don't ask this, okay? That's the implication. You don't talk about the past being better than the present if you are wise. But here again, okay, we're all guilty of talking about one another. We're all guilty of this as well. Great illustration yesterday, sitting at the soccer field. I was tired, kind of minding my own business. I wasn't in the dad chatter yesterday. Okay, if you go to any sporting events, you kind of get in the dad chatter. I was sitting getting to listen to the dad chatter. 
All right. I probably contributed to this in the past, so I'm not blaming others. A group of dads around my age, around 40, talking about the difference in how their how their kids spending time outside versus them spending outside. Okay. So the difference in that we've all heard that. I can remember my dad, who's early to mid 60s, I forget now, telling me how he and his five brothers essentially got to come in for mealtime, and then they were out. And I actually believe that. I really do. I mean, I'm not, I think he was 100% because my dad doesn't exaggerate anything. That's probably what my grandmother did. She had seven kids. She fed them and she kicked them out and they got to sleep and eat. Um, all right. So that's actually the case. But when my generation was growing up, it wasn't exactly like that. Okay. I know it wasn't quite the case. But according to those dads yesterday, it was like they uh, we never played a video game or watched TV. We're out in the woods building forts all the time. I'm like, you're 40. Okay, video games are not that old. TV's been around a while. Right? Nostalgia tends to cause us to look at the past with rose colored glasses while we look at the present like we're wearing a welding mask or something. Here's the deal. There has never been a time in history when it was great for everyone. It's never existed. Never been a time in history when it's great for everyone. Maybe there was a time it was better for you, but it wasn't better for everyone. Wisdom knows this. You know, venturing into politics can be dangerous. But you know what they say? Don't talk about politics and religion. We're talking about religion already. So we might as well talk about politics. All right. I've had this new slogan that's popped up, become pretty popular in recent history, used as a marketing campaign by a lot of companies now in different ways. Make America great Again, and I'm sure you can give a definition to that that's defensible and understandable. I'm sure you can. I I would yield to that. But how do you think it sounds to everyone? When was a time when it was good for everyone? Never. In reality, there's never a time when it's great for everybody. And the point is. Not not to pick on political slogans. The point is complaining about the past and or complaining about the present and longing for the past is a waste of energy, an absolute waste of energy. Okay, either you never got to live in that time that you're looking back to. You're just jumping on the bad bandwagon or you did live there. But now you live here and you can't go back. It's history. It's over. So it's a waste of energy. It's a waste of energy and it's an insult to God. As if where he has you now is a mistake. Remember, he is meticulously sovereign. Are you looking at the present and saying, God, you must have it wrong based on how it is now. But you got it right back then. Could you just sort of start tweaking the knobs and take us back 50 years, 100 years, whatever your time period may be? A much more productive and wise course is to live in the present well And work to affect the future as much as we have the ability to do that. Wisdom gives you that perspective. To quote Gibson one more time, if you think you are living in a world where things are getting worse all the time, then cheer up. At least you'll be dead before they get really bad. It's one of those that takes a minute to sink in, right? Let's not be blind to the good things in the present, nor ignorant of the evils of the past. That would be the point. All right. Now that I've brought politics into religion and... Lost at least half the room. Let's go to the next point. Next benefit, patience. Uh, in case um, I was questioning, I know in my study, if at any point I was questioning whether or not I was wise, this was sort of the nail in the coffin that said, nope, fool. Verse 9, 
Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. If you haven't noticed, some of the benefits are seen by contrast, okay? Okay, the fool is quick to anger, implying the wise person is patient. You know, sometimes the word gives you a hug, a high five, a chest bump, kind of lifts you up, picks you up. Other times the word hits you in the nose, stabs you in the heart, and you're not sure if you're alive. You're just laying there trying to figure out, am I still breathing? I walked around with this quote. Uh, for a couple days this week, uh, I, didn't, I didn't, <laughs> lost who the author was, so I'm sorry, but it's not me. It said, he says, anger as an indication of impatience and arrogance is itself a mark of the fool. This is how precious Christianity is in kind of a funny way. You can read the Bible, okay, and you can receive it and study it and own it, and you can walk away thinking... I am a beloved fool. And that's a good thing. Like, that's Christianity. You can read it and receive it and walk away going, I am a beloved fool. Not sure any other religion will tell you that. Patience, like perspective, is all over the text, knowing that there will be days of prosperity and adversity and that you really have no control over which is to come. That takes patience. As one pastor said, the righteously wise... Have to play the long game. Okay? The righteously wise have to play the long game. No quick fixes. Okay? No answers that just alleviate big problems just like that. So, the righteously wise play the long game. Wisdom produces patience. Next product, next benefit, protection. Verse 12. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. I think this is a this is this is a key verse when connected to redemptive history. We we, we talked about the story of redemption, the history of redemption in the first sermon, kind of okay, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, or consummation. So when you connect that verse in that arc, it's it's key. First, though, let's think about this. So he's using money here as a comparison. What can money protect you from? Most of you want to say nothing. Some of you are like, well, certain things. The reality is money can protect you from a lot of things. Money can buy security. You ever heard of insurance? Okay. Money can buy doctors, health care. You know, there's a lot of things that money can actually protect you from. All sorts of things in this life. You might put it this way. Money can protect you from a lot of circumstances. Okay. It's not a guarantee, but it, but it can. But what can wisdom protect you from? Something money can't. I would put it like this. Money can protect you from circumstances. Wisdom can protect you from sin. Which would you rather be insured against? Sin or circumstances? So you remember where wisdom starts. So with doctrine. Okay, it starts with doctrine. The doctrine of God specifically. So wisdom starts with God. With a right view, a right fear of God. And how do you get there? How do you get a right view of God that leads to a right relationship with God? This goes back to Jesus. Talked about him earlier. So there's a there's a practical side here that comes from wisdom. Verse 19 says that wisdom gives strength in the comparison here to money would say there's some temporal, practical protections from wisdom. But when you start to connect the dots and you trace it to Jesus in that story. And you see that wisdom provides protection from what is most needed. And it's in the arena of sin. 
As this text says, wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Money can protect you from a lot, but unlike wisdom, it can't do anything about sin. But the wise in Christ have that insurance. All right. Okay, we got to lay in this plane. We're running out of runway here. Last product, last benefit, piety. Piety. So, you knew I was going to end with a P, right? Been on kind of a roll today. I think it was D's and C's and P's. Uh, verses 15 through 18 can be a bit perplexing, really starting with verse 16. Uh, Since the righteous die and the wicked might live, then be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? And then be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this. And from that withhold not your hand for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. On the surface, it seems like uh, I, everything I just said just got tossed. That, that Solomon just messed me all up, okay? It basically, it sounds like you might die young anyways, so why not sort of mix wisdom and wickedness? Sort of a middle road between wisdom and wickedness. Don't, don't, don't be too wise, don't be too righteous, don't be too wicked. Just kind of mix them in there together and there's probably some guardrails and you'll bounce off one or the other. I'm assuming you don't think that's right. Since that would cause a ton of issues. So don't have a ton of time to get to the details here. But this text is pointing to two dangers or two ditches, but not righteousness and wickedness. It would point us to the ditch of self-righteousness. The language would point us to self-righteous. Don't be overly righteous. Don't be a fanatic. That would be one ditch. And then the other ditch would be unrighteousness, wickedness. You might say the ditch of perfectionism or the ditch of hedonism. Okay, and not the John Piper kind of hedonism, but the the bad hedonism. He is saying aim for the middle road, but that middle road is faithfulness. What I'm calling piety. Okay, the exhortation here, don't be a fanatic. Don't be don't be pharisaic to use New Testament language. Don't be nitpicky. Don't make the non-essentials essentials. Don't put your obedience and your rules in the place that only Jesus can stand. Don't self-justify with your righteousness. And certainly don't go the other way and embrace wickedness and folly. Both are different yet equally destructive paths. In one sense, the wicked often knows where they're headed. The self-righteous is blinded to where they're going. Probably deserves some more time, but we'll 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 let Calvin sum it up. I think he had a helpful quote on this. He said, listen to this closely. He said, God has prescribed for us a way in which he will be glorified by us, namely piety, which consists. So he's kind of defining piety, which consists in the obedience of his word. And then he says, he that exceeds these bounds does not go about to honor God, but rather dishonors him. He who exceeds Basically, faithfulness to God's word exceeds those, does not honor God. Piety consists of faithfulness to God's word. You exceed it, you are dishonoring God. So you could probably think of a a lot of nitpicky things that might fall in that category. A lot of self-righteousness, pharisaical things that you would be in that ditch, so to speak. So, what does wisdom produce or what sort of life exemplifies wisdom? A pious one. 
Or as Calvin said, one that consists in the obedience of God's word. So what does that life look like? A life with perspective, a life of patience, a life that is ultimately protected, a life of wisdom, a life that brings glory to God and good to others. It's a good life that Ecclesiastes is helping us to aim at and get towards. So that's more than enough for one day. So let's pray. And Lord willing, we'll get some time to come back to it. Father, we're we're grateful for your word that we get to gather around it, sing it, pray it, observe it, hear it proclaimed to receive it. We pray that truth, not any opinion that I may have gave, but truth from your word would lodge deep in our hearts and affect every facet of our lives that when we leave this place, Everyone, including us, would be impacted by what you have said to your people in these moments. Let it not fall at the door, but carry into the home, the workplace, the school, and among all nations. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.